The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A Renewed Look at MRA Therapy, Improving Renal Outcomes and Reducing Risks in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JNH860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Rajiv Agarwal from Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome to this educational activity focused on improving renal outcomes and reducing risks in patients with type 2 diabetes. Included as part of this activity, I'll be showing you how to use some practice aids that you can download with the hopes of helping you address clinical challenges that you may encounter in your clinical practice or that may support some of the discussions you may already having with your patients. So let's get started. The current approaches to identifying and managing patients with diabetic kidney disease. Diabetes is the leading cause of chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease in the United States. Reducing the incidence of end-stage kidney disease by 25% by 2030 is a national healthcare priority. The 10-year risk of mortality for individuals with type 2 diabetes and CKD is elevated, and CV death is the primary cause. In fact, uh, studies show that the 10-year cardiovascular mortality in patients type 2 diabetes and CKD is about 20%. That's worse than many forms of cancers. Some medications can reduce the rate of CKD progression and cardiovascular death in individuals with type 2 diabetes, but they are significantly underutilized. So how do we implement a framework for CKD screening, risk stratification, treatment, and education? What's our plan? The first is to determine the individual or a population level risk. Of course, when you're seeing a patient in your clinic, you want to determine the individual level risk. And that can be done by CKD screening for risk stratification. How often should we screen patients with diabetes? What tests should we do is what we're going to consider next. So let's take a help of our patient, a 68-year-old African-American man who presents to your clinic with a past history of hypertension for 22 years, dyslipidemia for 15 years. Patient has had coronary artery disease, two stents placed 14 years ago, type 2 diabetes for 10 years, CKD for 7 years. And on exam, his uh, abdomen is benign. He has one plus petting pedal edema. Uh, BMI is elevated at 33. His uh, LDL cholesterol is normal. Uh, A1C is within normal limits. And the patient is on atorvastatin 80 milligrams uh, once a day, metoprolol extended release, olmesartan, and linagliptin. Uh, blood pressure is high at 138 over 76. And he has got a fourth heart sound, no S3. GFR is depressed at 57. USCR is elevated at 494. Serum creatinine is 1.6, BON 37, and serum potassium 4.5. So let us consider uh, what got this patient in this state. First of all, patient has diabetes. And initially, many years ago, the patient's GFR was probably high, and then it became normal. And then it started falling. But before it started falling, there was probably the occurrence of microalbuminuria, or what we call as moderate albuminuria, 
or and then it progresses to very high albuminuria. This patient now has very high albuminuria. If we did biopsies of patients uh, who have uh, significant duration of diabetes, uh, what we find is uh, presence of injury to the kidney even before albuminuria uh, has its onset. You can see basement membrane thickening, mesangial expansion, cellular injury, and oftentimes patients have hypertension, which probably can be best identified in these patients with ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And often patients have an increase in nocturnal blood pressure even before some of the other manifestations take hold. As the disease progresses, these patients get cardiovascular disease. And this patient has a significant physical exam. He has got a fourth heart sound suggesting that the ventricular or diastolic function might be impaired. And therefore, he might have diastolic dysfunction, left ventricular hypertrophy. And this is soon followed by kidney complications, for example, uh, kidney failure and the need for dialysis. Traditionally, in this patient, we would interpret the GFR as being slightly impaired. As 57 is almost normal, but is this the whole story? So tell me what you think. Does this patient have CKD? Well, it turns out that if we only measured GFR in this patient, we really didn't assess the kidney function completely. The current ADA guidelines have uh, say that in patients who have type 2 diabetes, we should measure urinary albumin at least annually, and estimated GFR should be assessed in all patients type 1 diabetes who have a duration of diabetes for at least five years, and in every patient with type 2 diabetes, regardless of the treatment duration. Because what we know in people with type 2 diabetes is their disease might have uh, had the, its onset decades before, starting with insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, and culminating into uh, kidney injury unbeknownst to the patient before the patient manifests as a patient with uh, type 2 diabetes. So patients with diabetes and urine albumin, more than 300 milligram per gram creatinine, and or estimated GFR 30 to 60, should be monitored twice annually to guide therapy. So in this patient, the patient has both criteria, has a, a UACR of more than 300, and the uh, EGFR is 57. So this patient should at least be seen twice annually, and both these tests are to be monitored on a frequent basis. Now, why does it make a difference? Why should we be looking at albuminuria? Why? Because it's a huge risk marker. As you can see on this slide, we have people with type 2 diabetes and albuminuria, and the risk for all-cause mortality in the subsequent 10 years is almost 1 in 2. 10-year all-cause mortality, 1 in 2. I was just speaking to cardiovascular mortality of 20%, but you look at all-cause mortality, half the patients are dead in next 10 years if they have both impairment of kidney function and albuminuria. That's a very sobering statistic. And as nephrologists, we have learned that the assessment of kidney disease in any patient with type 2 diabetes is incomplete if we only measure EGFR. If we measure EGFR and albuminuria together, we can better stratify the risk, and that is shown in this KD, KD go heat map. 
If we don't do this, we basically are missing an opportunity to better stratify risk. For example, in people who have a GFR of, say, 57, and you haven't assessed USCR, you might consider them as moderate risk. But if they have a USCR of, of very high, like in this patient, 494, the patient is at very high risk of future kidney failure, future cardiovascular disease, future cardiovascular mortality, and even acute kidney injury. It's a marker for all these risks in any patient who has both an impairment of kidney function and USCR. Therefore, it is really important to screen these patients initially. And in this patient, we should be calling this patient twice a year and measuring it um, frequently, make sure that we have a good handle of it. So let's go back and ask the question, we now have, um, have assessed the risk. How should we stratify the risk? Now, we have information in this patient where if we were just measuring USCR or EGFR alone, we would have an incomplete picture. It turns out that 95% of the patients who have type 2 diabetes have information on EGFR, but only about half the patients have information on USCR. So USCR significantly adds to the, uh, the risk profiling. For example, in this patient who has stage 3A kidney disease, if we didn't measure albuminuria, the patient could have either moderate, high, or very high kidney failure risk in the future. But because we have assessed USCR, we can clearly define that the kidney failure risk is extremely elevated. So let's go back to the practice tool and identify that this patient can be risk stratified using both EGFR and USCR together. Now, this practice tool was inspired by the KDGO guidelines. It's not something that we are coming uh, up front ourselves, but because everybody has come up with a lot of good information on the bivariate assessment of, of kidney failure risk, through the assessment of EGFR and USCR, we can uh, risk stratify this patient. Now, in this patient uh, has USCR that is uh, elevated and EGFR that is depressed. And the KDGO guidelines suggest that we monitor these two values twice a year. So the practice tool helps you remind you that we need to do this twice a year, but also helps the patient understand that the risk is elevated and we have treatments that might reduce the risk. And that's what we're going to discuss uh, in the next part. So now we have risk stratified the patient. We know that the patient is at high risk for kidney disease progression, but we have come a long way in the last 20 years. Uh, in the last 20 years, uh, all we knew was uh, uh, controlled blood pressure, glycemia, quit smoking, weight loss, and then ASNR. That's it. Uh, but what are the treatment options today? Have things changed that can reduce the risk for kidney failure progression and cardiovascular disease in this patient that we are seeing today? So the current therapy on this patient today is a good dose of statin, high dose of torvastatin, 80 milligrams, the patient is on an ARB, Olmisartan, in a reasonable dose. 
Uh, metoprolol is there, but uh, linagliptin is there, and the, but the blood pressure is still elevated. And uh, we, we have some treatment opportunities in this patient. And the question is, would you make any changes to the medication regimen given what you know about this patient today? So we have several options. And what guidelines tell us is that we have multiple pillars of treatment. So this traditional pillars used to be risk factor management, which is based on glycemia control, weight loss, uh, blood pressure control, lipids, uh, reduction in sodium intake, smoking cessation, physical activity, protein restriction. These were things that before we discovered that ACE ARBs are useful. The first trial was done in 1993 with uh, Captopril. In 2001, we had a back-to-back -back discoveries of Irbisartan and Losartan for abrogation and progression of kidney disease in patients with type 2 diabetes, but those were the only pillars of treatment. Subsequently, uh, we discovered that uh, what we have with uh, RAS inhibitors is more than blood pressure control. We know that they work at many different sites of nephrons, including uh, reducing sodium reabsorption, improving uh, the uh, the efferent arteriolar tone, improving uh, the you know, blood flow, uh, but we we kind of uh, stop there. The main uh, problem with the RAS inhibitor use was hyperkalemia because uh, patients um, got hyperkalemic uh, as kidney disease progressed, and when we were using an ACE or an ARB that further increase the risk for hyperkalemia. But when we stop the RASI, it increased the risk of all-cause mortality, CV mortality, and the risk for dialysis initiation. Now, this information is relatively new, where observational studies suggest that stopping these medications is potentially harmful to the patients. So, we monitor potassium levels, and the KDGO uh, diabetes guidelines suggest that we monitor uh, potassium within two to four weeks after starting or changing the dose of any ASO arb. If the patient has normal kalemia and there's a less than 30% increase in creatinine, then they recommend that we increase the dose. With hyperkalemia, we review concurrent drug therapy consider diuretics, bicarbonate, or, or GI cation exchangers. And if the patient has an increase in creatinine, then we consider things like correct volume depletion, stop uh, NSAIDs, uh, reduce the diuretics, and consider renal artery stenosis. So it's not the simplest thing to do. It's kind of complicated. But over the last few years, we have expanded our armamentarium of kidney disease treatments from two pillars, which was simply based on risk factor management and ACE and ARBs. We at least have gone to four pillars, which include SGLT2 inhibitors and the non-steroidal MRA, phenarinol. The SGLT2 inhibitors have been um, based on two very large trials, Credence and DAPA-CKD, and we also have EMPA kidney recently stopped, and that should be announced fairly soon. Phenernone, likewise, is based on two large programs, uh, Fidelio and Figaro, 
encompassing more than 13,000 patients, which show that the drug phenerenone reduces the rate of kidney disease progression and also reduces the rate of cardiovascular disease uh, onset in these patients. GLP-1 RAs is uh, something that we are studying right now in the FLOW trial, and the FLOW trial should be announced in a couple of years. What we know for sure with the GLP-1 RAs is that they reduce albuminuria. They also seem to be protective against the atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, and if they produce improvement in atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, and that translates into net clinical benefit in terms of myocardial infarctions and strokes and kidney failure progression, that would be the fifth pillar that can potentially be of a strong pillar in addition to the previous four pillars that we are talking about. The problem is that most people are not on the third and the fourth pillar. They're relatively new, and that's what uh, is important to recognize, that despite the use of RAS inhibitors, the renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, which is basically ACE and ARBs, we haven't reduced the risk of inflammation and fibrosis. And what we are learning is ACE and ARBs may not be enough. In fact, ACE and ARBs are not enough even in uh, combination therapies. We did multiple trials like Aliskaran altitude trial, like the VNFRON trial where we combine an ACE and an ARB and we found that the combination was really not effective in reducing heart outcomes. However, when we block the final common pathway, which is the metallocortical receptor, through an antagonist, a non-steroidal antagonist with phenernone, we can actually reduce the rate of progression of kidney disease. Well, let's come back to our patient, and we say, okay, the patient uh, was switched um, to deltaism from uh, metoprolol, and was placed on an SGLT2 inhibitor, he comes back, his blood pressure remains high, his heart rate is within normal limits, he still has a high BMI. The GFR has dropped slightly, his UACR is better, but the question is, what do we do next? Well, it turns out that we can consider three options, spironolactone, eplernone, and phenernone. And I think the best source of information on how to use a drug is the package insert. The package insert for spironolactone tells you the indications, which is the use of this drug in hypertension, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, where it is a class 1A indication, in patients with refractory ascites, nephrotic syndrome, and primary hyperaldosteronism. Eplernone is a drug that came after spironolactone and it's approved for uh, post-myocardial infarction, uh, myocardial dysfunction, HEFREF, and in patients with hypertension. Uh, phenernone is indicated for none of these indications. So it's not indicated for hypertension or HEFREF, et cetera, but it's really indicated to reduce the risk of sustained EGFR decline, end-stage kidney disease, cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and hospitalized heart failure in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. So you can see there's really no overlap in the indications for the new drug, non-steroidal MRA, and the older drug, spironolactone and eplernone. There are differences among these drugs in the sense that, of course, they are chemically different, 
And the potency for spironolactone is high, as is phenarnone. Uh, Eplarnone is slightly weaker. Uh, but uh, phenarnone is quite highly selective to the immunocorticoid receptor, so it doesn't have androgenic, uh, anti-androgenic side effects like gynecomastia and impotence. Metabolites uh, are quite a few with uh, spironolactone. Eplarnone doesn't have that effect, and phenarnone has no active metabolites. The tissue distribution is quite remarkable. Uh, spironolactone is highly concentrated in the kidney, as is eplarnone, whereas phenarnone is kind of balanced in both kidneys and the heart. Now let's talk about these two trials, Figaro and Fidelio. Figaro was done in predominantly to reduce the rate of progression of cardiovascular disease in people with type 2 diabetes and CKD, and Fidelio was to look at the progression of kidney disease in people with type 2 diabetes and CKD. And they were kind of complementary trials. They were done at similar sites, more than 1,000 sites, 13,000 plus patients. And the patients that were recruited all had GFR more than 25. All of them had albuminuria. And all of them were on maximally tolerated label dose of ASOR, which is, as I told you, second pillar after the lifestyle modifications. But the patients were excluded if they had HEFREF. For that, spironolactone is a class 1A indication, and you don't want those patients in a clinical trial. And these patients, 13,000 plus patients, were randomized to either phenarnone or placebo in equal numbers and followed for a median of three years. And they were on pretty effective therapies. They were a population of 65 years age on average. 70% uh, were men. RAS inhibitors in all the patients, three quarters on statins, A1C 7.7, blood pressure very much similar to the patient that we uh, saw today, 137 over 76 and the prior history of heart failure was limited to 7.7% of the patients. Now, it turns out that the, most of the patients had impaired GFR, but 40% of the patients had GFR more than 60. So unless you measured USCR, you would only identify 60% of the patients in the fidelity analysis because these patients would be missed. You won't even know that these patients are at, are, are at a high risk for kidney disease progression and cardiovascular disease. The median USCR was 515, and nearly a third of them had microalbuminuria. Two-thirds, of course, had macroalbuminuria. Now, the results were quite remarkable. The, uh, if you look at the composite results of an individual level pooled analysis, we find that the cardiovascular endpoint was reduced 14%, as was the kidney composite by 23%. The kidney composite that we are talking about is what the endpoints were used traditionally in the captopril trial, IDNT, renal credence, that's based on doubling of serum creatinine and stage renal disease or receipt of dialysis or transplantation or death from kidney failure. So we are using the same endpoint and we're finding on top of ACE and ARBs, it reduced the risk by 23%, which means that the, the drug is working on top of, and that's what is making it a pillar. Now for the patient, it's quite simple to explain. The way I explain to the patient is that if you take this drug, we reduce your risk for heart failure by about a fifth and going on dialysis by about a fifth. It's an approximation. You have a 22% risk reduction for heart failure hospitalization and 20% reduction for dialysis. 
and on top of standard of care, phenernone reduced the risk of clinically meaningful cardiovascular and kidney outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes over a broad spectrum of chronic kidney disease. Remember, there's no upper limit of GFR. Everybody had a GFR of more than 25. The caveat is that we want to use this in patients who have a potassium of five or less. Can't use it in people with hyperkalemia. Why? Because the major risk that this drug poses is hyperkalemia. It doubles the risk approximately from about 6% to 12%. And these are people who are experiencing potassium, uh, which is elevated any time in the trial. It's no surprise that hyperkalemia is elevated. Two other risks that you should be aware of is uh, hypotension and hyponatremia. These are labeled risk in the package insert. And we should be aware that if somebody has hypertension, it could be because of uh, phenernal. So it turns out that Fidelio Figaro are broadly generalizable. Uh, and the US population has fewer individuals with severe uh, albuminuria and people with a lot of moderate albuminuria and type 2 diabetes. And if we didn't screen for these, uh, these markers, the uh, opportunity to reduce the increase in cardiovascular less risk would not uh, be, it would be lost. So it's important to consider that these patients ought to be treated with this drug. Now, how do we dose phenernone? It's fairly simple. Uh, if the patient has GFR more than 60, start with 20 milligrams once a day. If they have less than 60 GFR, then you start with 10 milligrams. If it's less than 25, not recommended. You don't want to use the drug. So 10 milligrams if you have less than 60, 20 milligrams, more than 60. Now, if you call the patient back, uh, we just need to call them four weeks after starting the drug. And four weeks after the starting the drug, you have a potassium of less than 4.8, you can increase the dose to 20. If they're on 4.8 to 5.5, you maintain. A lot of people think that, oh, potassium more than five, we ought to stop the drug. No, you keep going unless the potassium is more than 5.5, in which case you withhold the drug and you call the patient back. And if the potassium is less than 4.8, we can start the drug again. I think it's less than five, you can start the drug again. That's what the package insert says. So it's very important that we don't stop the drug and label it as allergy because the more we can expose uh, the, the MR antagonist on top of other drugs, the greater the risk reduction the patients can achieve. So we decided to add phenernone to this patient's regimen and what should the initial dose be in this individual? Well, clearly, and the GFR is 45, it's less than 60, so we have to have the patient on 10 milligrams. And you have to call the patient back in four weeks, not in two weeks, not in one week, but you call the patient back in four weeks. We have done these studies. We have called them more frequently in phase two programs. It doesn't really reduce the uh, chances of hyperkalemia. So four weeks seems to be quite reasonable. So we call the patient back and the patient is back uh, in four weeks and his GFR is still 45. His albuminuria is now down to 270 and serum potassium is 5.1. What should we do with his MRA dose? Should we stop this because it's now more than five? And the answer is no, you keep going. 
you maintain the dose at 10 milligrams. You don't go up to 20. Why? Because the patient is having a higher potassium level, but you maintain the dose at 10 milligrams. And if you maintain the dose at 10 milligrams, you can call the patient back in about three months or four months and check a potassium again. You don't stop the drug because the potassium is more than five. And let's go back to our uh, tool that we have uh, you know, developed the practice tool. And the patient now has USCR of 270 and GFR is 45. And the patient may be watered and say, doc, I've lost some kidney function, I'm concerned. But look, USCR is also dropped to 270 and he has moved from a very high risk to a high risk. And if somebody sees these and says, oh, actually my risk has improved and you know maybe I'm in a better place than where I was, a few months ago. And that patient needs to be congratulated along with the doctor who's prescribing because he didn't stop the drug when the potassium was 5.1, kept going. And if you keep going, you can derive benefit from it because that's what we did in the Figaro and Fidelio trial. Now let's take an alternate scenario. What instead our patient came to us using a different treatment regimen and worse kidney function, for example, the blood pressure is 168 over 70, EGFR is 30, USCR is 600, um, and serum potassium is 5.6. Patient is still on olmesartan and deltaism and atorvastatin and chlorothaladone. The patient is on good dose of metformin. And the question is, what should we do? Well, let's go back to our worksheet and ask the question, what should we do? The patient has a GFR of 30 and potassium is 5.6. Should we be uh, still using the drug? And the answer is no. The potassium is now more than 5.5. The patient was on 10 milligrams of the drug. You have to withhold the drug and consider restarting 10 milligrams once daily when the potassium is less than five, for example, you can call this patient back in four weeks and say, okay, if the potassium is lower, less than five, then potentially you can start the drug. But for now, because the potassium is 5.6, we're supposed to be withholding the drug. So what adjustments should you make to the medication regimen in this patient? There are several options. For example, you can discontinue metformin. You can make a strong case for it because the patient has a GFR of less than 30 and metformin is associated with uh, lactic acidosis and accumulation, especially when patients go in the hospital for cardiac catheterization and have AKI, metformin can play havoc. And uh, typically, a lot of physicians would discontinue metformin at this level of GFR. We can potentially reduce olmesartan dose. The olmesartan dose is not high, it's only 40 milligrams. But if you reduce the dose, uh, it might mitigate the serum potassium level. And, you know, you might actually consider discontinuing olmesartan uh, because of hyperkalemia. The question is, is uh, finernone going to work uh, in the absence of olmesartan? We did not do that in clinical trials. We did not discontinue ACE and ARB in preference to 
phenerenone in the clinical trial. So that's not what the recommendations would be. Could we increase chlorothaladone dose? Well, chlorothaladone was used in 25 milligrams once a day. The patient is not on a loop diuretic. You can potentially increase chlorothaladone dose. Uh, the advantage could be that uh, potassium excretion may be enhanced and hyperkalemia may uh, resolve more rapidly. You can potentially add a loop diuretic. I probably would avoid using a loop diuretic in the face of chlorothaladone because if you do that, you're probably going to have more acute kidney injury. I'd rather increase the dose of chlorothaladone, which might facilitate potassium removal instead of adding a loop diuretic. And adding phenernone is not an option because the potassium now is 5.6. 5.6 potassium is not a good idea to use uh, a phenernone. So those would be the uh, algorithms that you know, some physicians might use that uh, we can go back to and ask the, ourselves the question, what should we be doing next if the patient has not responded or developed something that we don't have an answer to? And here are the various uh, uh, places you can go to, the AAKP, the ANA, the uh, CKD initiative uh, from CDC, NIDDK, National Kidney Foundation, lots of resources for patients and, and healthcare professionals where a lot of information is available. There are many obstacles that can contribute to poor outcomes in patients with diabetes, and uh, the, it takes a village to uh, take care of these patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. These are incredibly complex patients because not only do they have diabetes and need for glycemia control, but they also have kidney disease. They also have a lot of cardiovascular disease. These are people who might have limited resources. They might have limited means to afford their care. And it's really important that there has to be a coordinated care uh, in taking care of these patients. There are other important members of the care team, for example, diabetes educators, nephrology nurse educators who play a critical role. Particularly when the GFR is low, they need education on how uh, the renal replacement therapy would be coordinated. So it simply takes a village to take care of these patients. In, in closing, the standard of care for diabetes kidney disease has uh, changed significantly since the 2020 KDGO guidelines, and which are somewhat already outdated. Since the publication of Fidelio and Figaro, uh, we acknowledge that phenernone uh, reduces the risk of progression of kidney disease as well as cardiovascular disease in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD. Uh, it is uh, the state-of-the-art treatment in people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. The practice tools that we talked about today hopefully will help you overcome some of the clinical inertia and better uh, involve uh, the multidisciplinary care of patients with uh, CKD and type 2 diabetes. Thank you for your attention. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening.
Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JNH860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.